God says, I have loved you, but the people answer, how have you loved us? And now, in verse 6, and in this section, he's saying, actually, how have you loved me? How have you loved me? How often do we do this, church? In times of difficulty, the first response we give is, God, where are you in this? Are you, are you here? Do you love me? And maybe the right response sometimes is, how am I loving God in the midst of all of this? And right in verse 6, he roots all of this in familial language, adding salt to the wound. We were supposed to be a family. You call me master, and this is how you treat your father and your master? You bring me your blind and sick and diseased animals as a sacrifice when you know you should bring me your best. A sacrifice that costs nothing is an oxymoron. A sacrifice like this, bringing the leftovers that aren't really worth anything anyway, is no sacrifice at all. A sacrifice should cost something. It should be a sacrifice. Now notice in this text, who is he addressing here? Who does God say is complicit in all these actions? It's actually not the people. It's the priests. That's right. The priests are culpable for the actions of the people here. God's confrontation of sin and injustice begins with the leadership structures. God's confrontation of sin and injustice begins with the leadership structures. Now, who's the modern-day equivalent of the priests? The pastors. Yeah, so you guys are feeling pretty good about yourselves right now, aren't you? I'm, I'm shaking a little bit. So God accuses the priests, and this is something we're going to see in this quite a lot, and we'll come back to that idea in a minute. But let's talk about this. Why does God bring up the father and the master connections here? Is it just a passive-aggressive kind of jab? Is it just a guilt trip? Or maybe God is after more than just their actions. He's after their hearts. If he were after their actions, he would say, stop it. Quit doing that. Like the way that I just sadly resort to parenting sometimes. Let's knock it off. Don't do that. Right? No, God's going after the heart. He's saying, is this how you would treat a father that you loved? Or a governor that you respect? Something of the heart is exposed in our actions, church. Something of the heart is exposed in our actions. And these meager offerings show more of their heart toward God than I think they realize. Maybe they're thinking to themselves, well, it's good enough for who it's for. Now this calls us, this text calls us, we have to search our own hearts here too, church. So Redemption Arcadia, what's the equivalent of these meager offerings for us? Has your faith only become about the duty and the steps, or has it lost its devotion? Look at this quote from Gary Smith, it says, When duty replaces devotion, human nature is such that it seeks minimum steps, barely enough to meet an obligation. This contrasts with a true love relationship, seeking to do the maximum for the beloved. Church, those we truly love or admire or respect or fear, to those we give our very best because we want to please them. It's an outflowing of love. Church, are we giving God our best or our leftovers? And I don't think he's talking about the amount here. 
Again, he's getting at the heart. If you're giving God the leftovers, what does that say about your view of him? So first, let's just think about this. Let's try to give imagination here. How do you spend your time? We are a busy, busy people. And as a pastor, I see this as maybe one of the idols in our church. At times, I see in my own family in, uh, and in us as a church, I see a chronically busy people. Maybe we've allowed culture to define how we spend our time a little too much rather than God. Do you come to church only when it works out, when the stars align and things happen? Are you in a community group, but kind of only come when there's not really anything else pressing to do, and I guess that's all I got left to do? This is what it looks like to give God the leftovers. We ought to instead let God define how we spend our time. What would it look like to say no to that uh, lunch with that person or to say no to that after-school program that pulls your kids away from Sundays, maybe because attending Sundays is more important for shaping you and your family than that success for them? How do you spend your money? Did you build your budget around your needs first and whatever was left to the church, if at all? What if you started instead with how much you should give first, then built your life on what's left? Now, again, I just feel like I have to keep saying this. This is not about the amount. You may end up with the same amount, but it's about the heart. What we do with our time or money or fill in the blank says something about our hearts, our view of God even. Now, Malachi is pulling no punches, and he continues that. Let's look at verses 10 through 14. It's going to get worse before it gets better. Oh, that there were one among you who would shut the doors, that you might not kindle fire on my altar in vain. I have no pleasure in you, says the Lord of hosts, and I will not accept an offering from your hand. For from the rising of the sun to its setting, my name will be great among the nations, and in every place incense will be offered to my name and a pure offering. For my name will be great among the nations, says the Lord of hosts, but you profane it when you say that the Lord's table is polluted, and its fruit, that is, its food, may be despised. But you say, what a weariness this is, and you snort at it, says the Lord of hosts. You bring what's been taken by violence or is lame or sick, and this you bring is your offering. Shall I accept that from your hand, says the Lord? Cursed be the cheat who has a male in his flock and vows it, and yet sacrifices to the Lord what is blemished. For I am a great king, says the Lord of hosts, and my name will be feared among the nations. God is on his mission church. Amen? God is on his mission. And you're either on it with him or you're not. This is his primary concern, and this is the people's primary offense among many. What you're doing with your leftover offerings is misrepresenting me to the people around you. What does serving God only when it's convenient for you say about God to your neighbors? What does giving God your leftover time or money say about your view of God? God says, my mission is to all nations, to the world, and it's impacted. What a crazy statement that is. It's impacted by what starts in your heart. 
He says, I will be praised. I will be feared among the nations. What a crazy privilege it is, church, for the Christians in this room to know and remember that you are united together in God's mission. And their half sacrifices, half surrender to God will not do. It's not enough. This is God math. It's all or nothing. There's no middle ground because of the heart that's shown in half surrender to God. Look what God does with lukewarm faith. Many of you know this verse, Revelation 3, 15 through 16. Jesus says to the church, I know your works. You are neither cold nor hot. Would that you were either cold or hot. So, because you are lukewarm and neither hot nor cold, I will spit you out of my mouth. That's terrifying. That is terrifying. This is what God does with a lukewarm heart. It's better to spit you out. Back in verse 10, what does God say is better than these sacrifices? To shut the doors of the temple. To close up shop. That's serious. That would have been shocking for the priests to hear. That would have blindsided them. Tyler Johnson, another Tyler. Yeah, we're just all Tylers. He's the lead pastor of Redemption Church, and he was here first anyway. He said a version of this many times in our meetings as pastors. He would say something like this. I could care less about Redemption Church as a brand. If we ever become a hindrance to the mission of God, then let's shut the doors. We're better off that way. And that was the theme as I sat in the preaching collective two weeks ago, surrounded by these pastors and mighty men of God studying this text. They were all shaking in their boots. And rightly so. How weird would it have been if I'd have sat next to them and they went, oh, that'd be weird for whoever that's talking about. This causes self-reflection, and it should. And of course, church, the truly scary thing is, this is us. We are lukewarm at times. We are unfaithful often. And our desperate hope is that God would count us faithful anyway because of Jesus. It's no wonder the people and the priests say, oh, what a weariness this is. Many of you can relate to a statement like that. Because their devotion to God has been replaced by duty. Church, where has your devotion to God been replaced by duty instead? Have you noticed that when your heart's not really in something, it becomes way harder than it actually is or than it was last time you did it? We do grow weary at times, and weariness can lead to just going through the motions, just doing it because it's duty, leading us down the path that the people of Israel and the priests are on now. Let's continue in Malachi 2. We're going to read 1 through 3. And now, O priests, this command is for you. If you will not listen... If you will not take it to heart to give honor to my name, says the Lord of hosts, then I will send the curse upon you, and I will curse your blessings. Indeed, I have already cursed them because you do not lay it to heart. Behold, I will rebuke your offspring and spread, yes, you're reading that right, and spread dung on your faces, the dung of your offerings, and you shall be taken away with it. So this is one of those rare moments where I get to make poop jokes, but do it exegetically, because it's in the Bible. Um, But this is a bizarre text, right? This is weird. The first time you read this, you're like, okay, wait, what did he actually just say? He's going to smear poop on the priest's faces? 
Yes, he did. Okay, so why? Why would God say that? There's a lot of things he could have said. Maybe less graphic. But as with most things in Malachi, and this is what Frank was talking about with this section, there's just a lot of layers to a lot of what's happening here. So let's talk about it. During the sacrifice, as the animal was slaughtered, the dung was removed and then placed outside the city. Okay, that wasn't part of the sacrifice. That place outside the city where all the dung and the trash and all that stuff was, was Gehenna, where all the unfit people and, th- and things were thrown. Now, that's obviously a metaphor, but if it were to happen, if God really did take the dung from the sacrifice and smear it on the face of the priests, they would have been humiliated, disgraced, disgusted, and most importantly, ceremonially unclean, unfit to perform their duties as priests until they were cleaned. And to go farther, it says, they will be taken away with it. Did you see that? So the priests won't be just temporarily removed from their duties. They'll be thrown into an area where they couldn't return, ever. And we have to acknowledge that the way that this would have made the priests feel is probably how it felt to God. These half offerings probably felt like a complete disgrace a spit in the face, or worse. Now look at this glimmer of hope we get in verses one and two. See the if and then statements? If you will not listen, if you will not take it to heart, then I will send the curse. So this curse is conditional. They have a chance to respond. But the covenant remains unconditional. God's love is not in question here. It's their love that's in question. If they turn, they can avoid the curses that have already begun, because God says, I've already stopped accepting these, if they turn back towards God. But God is on his mission either way. His covenant with his people still stands, and that's a comfort. Malachi continues this idea of covenant in verses four through six. Let's read those. So shall you know that I have sent this command to you, that my covenant with Levi may stand, says the Lord of hosts. My covenant with him was one of life and peace, and I gave them to him. It was a covenant of fear, and he feared me. He stood in awe of my name. True instruction was in his mouth, and no wrong was found on his lips. He walked with me in peace and uprightness, and he turned many from iniquity. So Malachi begins describing this covenant with and the life of this Levi, this faithful priest Levi, who did his job well. He was faithful, and so let's ask how. One, he feared God. And this is fearing God in the positive sense, not the like, I'm afraid of you thing, but in the positive sense, fearing God. He stood in awe of God's name. Isn't that a cool line? Levi stood in awe of God's name. You can almost picture him just staring. True instruction was in his mouth. No wrong found on his lips. And this is a reference to Levi's ability to just teach God's word faithfully, to communicate God's law to the people and do that well. He walked with God in peace and uprightness. I love how that sort of feels like a callback to Genesis, walking with God. Now, as you read this, and I notice this too, you might have felt this, he starts to sound, Levi starts to sound pretty good, like almost 
maybe perfect, maybe a little too good. Well, again, as with many things in Malachi, it's layered. Some think this is also a reference to or a hint at Christ, who was the very word of God, who was always obedient to the Father. And in any case, whether this is just talking about Levi or it's a hint of Christ and about Levi, in any case, we know from the Gospels and from the book of Hebrews that one of the lineages that we can trace back of Jesus is this role as priest, back to this Levitical covenant right here. His life fulfilled the Levitical priesthood. He is the once and for all great high priest who intercedes on our behalf. And this lineage extends to you and I as well. You see, this sermon would be primarily a warning to pastors, if not for this verse in 1 Peter 2.9. But you, church, are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. What a beautiful verse. So Christians, followers of Jesus, you are part of this lineage. Fulfilled by Jesus and through him, that lineage is passed to you. A royal priesthood, a holy nation, that you may proclaim Christ. So let's look at verses 7 through 9, and let's look at our job as priests to the world. 7 through 9. For the lips of a priest should guard knowledge. And people should seek instruction from his mouth. For, and this is the big job, he is the messenger of the Lord of hosts. But you have turned aside from the way. You have caused many to stumble by your instruction. You have corrupted the covenant of Levi, says the Lord of hosts. And so I make you despised and abased before all the people, inasmuch as you do not keep my ways, but show partiality in your instruction." Now, I want to be clear here. Pastors do indeed have a unique and weighty responsibility in the church. We will have to give account before God for our time here on on the church's action or inaction. But this is yours too. This role of priest is not exclusively on us. It's yours as well. Looking looking again at verse 7, you see we are the messengers of the Lord of hosts. You know, Malachi, that word in Hebrew means my messenger. And this is our task. We are Malachi to others. And that's why a partial sacrifice, that heart and partial submission, giving him what's left over and worthless, cannot be his messenger. It doesn't work. Remember, that half-surrendered heart leads to what verses 8 and 9 point to. That in that, we're going to turn others aside. And what a scary thing that would be. We'll corrupt the covenant that God made. Full surrender to God is a high call. But even then, I don't think it's saying the standard is perfection. It can't be perfection. We know Levi wasn't perfect. The perfection doesn't come from us then. The perfection is found in the message itself that we are to proclaim, this gospel of Jesus. Church, Christians, we are messengers and proclaimers of the gospel of Jesus to the world around us. And look at how it describes it in here. We're messengers by word and deed. Looking back at verse 6, Levi spoke true instruction. Spoke no wrong. And looking down again, he walked in peace 
and uprightness. So church, what you say and what you do says something to your neighbors. What you say and what you do says something about God to your neighbors. In our church, Redemption Arcadia, to the city around us, God is on his mission. His name will be great among the nations. So lastly, and in closing, how do we join him in this work? How do we know if we're fully surrendered? Because we see the blindness of the people. I mean, best case scenario, it's blindness. How do we know if we're not blind too? That's a hard thing. So how do we know if we're fully surrendered to God? Well, first, like Levi, we ought to stand in awe of God's name. Stand in awe of his God's name. Remember, we have a good and loving father. Amen? He's worthy of our very best. We have a generous and kind master. It's worthy of our full surrender. Remember or try to remember. I know it's hard. Try to remember. We have a great high priest in Jesus who was himself the spotless, perfect sacrifice without blemish on the once and for all, fully and forever satiated altar of God. So remember, stand in awe, Christians. And maybe you've never given your heart fully to God. Maybe you're here and you've not believed that Jesus is that good father, that master and that high priest. If that's you, then start there. Come pray with someone during the communion time or after. Don't let another invitation slide by while you watch it go. Simply come and say, I want to fully surrender to Jesus. And they'll lead you through the rest. Now, continuing for us as Christians, the next thing, pray. There's no secret sauce here. There's no, there's no like flashy language here. Ask God to hold up a mirror to your heart and to show you what it's like. It's one of those rare times we can know with certainty right now what God's will for you in this moment is, is that you be fully surrendered to him. So start by asking him to show you how. Next, church, consider. Are there ways I'm giving God my leftovers? Maybe you already have something in mind. Let me just encourage you, don't ignore it. James 1 talks about that idea. It's like a man who sees his face in a mirror then walks away and immediately forgets what he looks like. Don't do that. Write it down somewhere. And after you've awakened from your food coma after our barbecue out there, come back to it somehow. Talk, to, talk with your friends, family, spouse about it. And maybe you don't have anything in your head yet. Maybe you still have to do a little bit of work before God in prayer. Let me encourage you, do the work. The stakes are too high not to. Ask, am I doing this out of duty or devotion? And then last, of course, remember the gospel. Repent and turn again to him. Lastly, I'll just say this. Full surrender is not just about your actions or what you say, but what your actions reveal about your heart. Are you giving God your best or your leftovers? Let's pray. God, you are a good father. Some of us in here have never experienced a good father before. But you're patient. You're kind. Your approval for us is not conditional on what we do or say. And God, we praise you for that. 
You are a good and kind and generous master. God, thank you that you are the high priest. Thank you that in you, we don't have to worry about the animal sacrifice anymore. We get to what you were getting to in this text all along, which is the heart. So God, help us submit our hearts to you because we don't know how. We don't know what's going on in our hearts often. We're blind to it. So God, show us. And when you show us, help us to not walk away and forget and just move on and let the busyness of life creep back in. Help us to consider and to slow down and ask you, God, because we know your will for us is this, to be fully surrendered to you. Help us in Jesus' name, amen.